0: Uh, Of course, it it doesn't take much to know that what's called the New Atheists are very much in the news, and it seems like every, I don't know, six months, another bestseller is out proclaiming that not only God is dead, uh, but that uh, people ought not to be religious. Uh, Just a few introductory matters before I start talking about our first representative, Christopher Hitchison, today. Uh, You know... I. Uh, you know, there's the new Atheist. Well, that sort of begs a question, doesn't it? Who are the old Atheists? <laughs> well, I guess in some ways, like the like the psalmist would say, he, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. I mean, there's always been Atheists. and uh, But typically, the old Atheists are people like Sigmund Freud, who said that religion is just a wish projection, and that and in his famous book, The Future of Illusion, that one day, because the influence of science and modernity, people would no longer need to be religious... Then there's the famous German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who said that God is dead and the reason why is because we need to be our own God and we need to get rid of God to do so. Then there was Karl Marx, the famous political theorist who said that religion is the opium of the masses, the sigh of the oppressed, and that um, it was an oppressive force in society working for justice and we need to get rid of religion. David Hume, another famous philosopher, said that religion has no rational basis, And so there are all these philosophers that are associated with the 17th, 18th centuries that I guess one could call the old atheist. But come in, there are some new seats I mean empty seats up here. Um, and uh, so what's distinctive here about the new atheist? Well, now the old atheists have had a big influence. There's no doubt about it. I don't think you can understand the 20th century without understanding Karl Marx, that's for sure, and also Sigmund Freud. They have had massive influence in our culture. Those ideas, the attitude of those old atheists have definitely become part of our culture. Uh, one of the, I think, newer characteristics of the new atheist is that it's a populist movement. These people, a few of them are academics, uh, some of them really first-class scientists, and we're going to be looking at a first a couple of them, and some of them are popular writers, like what we're looking at this morning, Christopher Hitchens. But they write material for the general reading public, and millions of people are buying up their books. In fact, close to three-quarters of a million people bought Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great. And so these are highly influential in the populace, in the general reading public. Uh, but also there is a little more of an emphasis of an Anti religion, not just our religion, but an anti religion to the new atheist. In fact, Christopher Hitchison calls himself not just an atheist, that is, it's not just that I don't believe in God, he calls himself an anti theist, that is, he's against people who believe in God. And he works as hard as he can, or at least he did, uh, to try to eradicate influence to, uh, of, of religion, to show a good argument that we need to get rid of religion. And uh, we're going to be looking at five different people over the next four weeks. I'll be back next Sunday, and then there'll be a two-Sunday gap. I th- there are some things going on here, and then I'll be back for uh, two more Sundays after that. We're going to be looking at five representatives, and quite honestly, each of them get a little more vitriolic each time. And so if you come back, just you know, buckle up. It's going to be a rough ride. They're really going to make some strong, strong denunciations, accusations, and claims about religion. In fact, near the end, we're going to find somebody recommending that uh, religious people, if they don't recant, ought to be thrown into jail because they're evil and are a threat to society, just like the Nazis. Now, that's a little different. I mean, Freud thought we all were sort of psychotic for being religious. Marx thought we were kind of oppositional to the great th- you know, need for social justice, but... Um, I've never had anybody say, I, you ought to go to jail just because you believe in God. Well, that's become part of the tenor of what's called the New Atheist. And and I was talking to Gil, I guess, several months ago, and he asked me, well, you think about doing another series, and I've been doing some reading and thinking about this, and so I'm here to offer you some responses to this. All right, a couple more introductory comments before I start to, with the book, uh, God is Not Great. My goal here is not to completely denounce these people, you know, as Christians... We are not to judge, and hence we're not even to judge those who judge us. And so how can we do this as Christians respond to these people who are so vehement in their opposition and denunciation of not only the faith, but of us who have that faith, how to do that. And so I, I'm not here to equip you with some sort of you know quiver of arrows to go out and shoot all the atheists down and win every argument, but really what I want to do is to equip us to be more humble in our response to these Accusations. How to do this as a Christian, not just as an intellectual who disagrees with him, but as one who has been shaped by the power of the gospel. All right. Secondly, uh, uh, we could spend a lot of time going over all these books, which we uh, we're not going to do. I'm going to try to hit the what I would call the high water marks of each of these books. Look at some representative passages in them to try to get an understanding of what is Hitchison doing, what is Dawkins saying, what is Dennett trying to do, what is their main point. And, and because of that, I would recommend, if, if you've got the nerve, to go and read these books. Uh, you know, read them for yourself. Pay attention to the details on, on your own. And, uh, I think it's instructive. It will definitely be confrontational and provocative. It will force you to think through what you really believe in and have good reasons. And, in fact, I'm going to conclude each of our sessions with this, that because there is such a, an intelligent, I'm not, well, no, no, that's not the right word, smart, but not necessarily intelligent. There's a difference between the two. Like being you know, a smart aleck and being a good student, there are two different things. Well, these people are very smart. Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, brighter. I don't have a, a more prestigious background and, and IQ than these people. These are very smart people. We're not going to be more smart, so to speak, than they are. But that doesn't mean all their arguments are intelligent. I think that should force us to be more intelligent with our faith. That is, to come up with good reasons, to explain why we believe we know these things and believe these things, explain why we have some confidence and trustworthiness in the Scriptures, and why we think our doctrines have some, some ground in, in, in claim about reality and so on. Uh, you know, here, in, of course, the church has to be many things. Obviously, it has to be a, a servant to society. We have to learn to serve those who uh, who need help. That's part of our mission. We should be a you know a light to the nations to, to show how uh, people are to live in a lot of God's presence. and but I think another way, we, we need to give a good defense of our faith. and that's always been part of the burden of every generation. How can you rightly communicate the faith? And here in our culture, there is a very strong, you know, smart opposition to our faith. Well, how do we respond to that? We just sort of snub our nose or we ignore it? I don't think so. I think we have to have a a very deliberate, well-thought-out response to these things. That's part of the burden, I think, of the church here in America, especially here. All right, one other thing. Um, uh, I I don't want to think that we have to defend 2,000 years of Christian history. Uh to respond to these atheists are Western civilization. Oftentimes, people want to equate Western civilization with Christianity. I don't want to do that, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I do think much of what has gone on in Western civilization in the last 200 years has been shaped by Christianity, no doubt about it. You hear this phrase all the time, the Judeo-Christian worldview has shaped much of Western society, and that is true. Uh... However, though, uh, I do think Christianity has probably haunted the West more than shaped it. Um, th- at the heart of our faith are such claims that I don't think any civilization has found a way to put into real institutional practice. You know, for instance, who's the greatest of all? Did you say haunted, haunted, or haunted? Haunted. haunted. Yeah, not hunted. Ha- did I say hunted? Haunted. Oh, okay. Haunted. My Texas accent really hurts my <laughs> vowels sometimes. Um, Haunted, I think Christianity haunts the West more than shapes the West, even though it has had a major influence on it. But, you know, the love of enemy, I don't know of any institution that is based upon that principle, the love of enemy. But our faith is, isn't it? That the greatest is the least of all. The greatest thing you can do for your friend is to give your life for your friend. I don't know of any institution that is shaped on those kind of principles, but that's at the heart of the Christian faith. And so those ideas about, you know, God being coming incarnate in Christ, about uh, the the first will be last and the last will be first at the very core of our faith, to me is is more of a a, a prophetic challenge to our civilization rather than a, a description of what we have been for the last 2,000 years here in the West. And so I don't think I feel the burden of having to defend the Judeo-Christian worldview with that. I don't think I have to. But I do have a burden to defend the accusations against Christianity and against Christians. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And the first one here is Christopher Hitchens. He is uh, one of the more celebrated public intellectuals that we've had, I guess, in the last 25 years. Uh, he's famous for a number of things. He wrote this book called The Missionary Position. Any ever read it? I've just read a few things about it. It was really a scathing, heartless attack against Mother Teresa. Uh, just, um, I mean, he saw things I don't think anyone else has ever seen in Mother Teresa. But this is the one for which he is mostly known, and that is, uh, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Now, you may think just some sort of bookseller, some editor put everything there to make you know it more provocative. No, he means everything. He really does that. Religion poisons everything. Well, that's quite a charge, and so I want to spend a little time talking about that. Uh, Hitchens uh, was born in 1949 in um, England, South England, and he died in December 19—I mean, 2011—not all that long ago. And uh, very well known, very popular. He um, was educated at Oxford. And he became a journalist and eventually came to the United States, immigrated to the United States, became a U.S. citizen in 2007. He wrote from some you know, very influential magazines, from The Nation to The Atlantic to Vanity Fair and so on. And then he started to write these books, I think, all together. seemed like I read he wrote 15 books. Uh, he started off as a pretty vocal uh, Marxist socialist. And then after what happened in September 11, 2001, he became, even though he didn't like this phrase, uh, some people called him a neoconservative, and mainly he felt that he had to oppose what he considered to be uh, Islamic fascism and its influence and growth in society. And he was an advocate for the Iraqi war, uh, but he was very much a, a, a pro, I mean, an opponent to George W. Bush, and so he was in some ways kind of a person hard to categorize, except for this. That is his anti-theism. He was relentless. He 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 uh, seemed like every other month he was on some national stage debating somebody. You can just you know go online and just type in Christopher Hitchinson's debates, and there's a long debate, and a lot of these very well-known Christians have gone on stage and debated him. And I think it was in 2009 he was on our campus at Samford, and uh, he had a debate with a chemist, no, or mathematician, I forget, named Lennox from. Oxford and uh, quite honestly between you and me it wasn't very interesting i, uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, that, that, that's probably too you know condo- uh, judgmental on my part to say that but I didn't I didn't think it was a very good debate I really didn't kind of got out of hand and they really weren't talking to each other and so uh, but that that's what he wanted to do and he sort of threw the gauntlet out and he said any, any any religious person wants to debate me I'll go anywhere in the world on any stage and I'll take you on and uh, quite honestly as far as uh, dominating the conversation as far as having the last word, the most biting statement, the kind of uh, r- claim that you can't really respond to—he—he'd beat you. In. He really would. I—I I wouldn't do it. I think I—I uh, I wouldn't get on stage to talk with him. Not because I think he's got a better answer than me, but he is. He's—he's he's very clever. He was very quick with his tongue. Very good writer. In fact, he is. If you ever read some of his stuff, he's a tremendous writer. And uh, he, he could turn a phrase, he could put things together, and before you knew it, uh, you were in a corner. And so it's not really much of, I think, an intellectual ex- ex- exchange uh, that I heard that night. And so, frankly, I don't think much is served in those kind of debates in the first place. It's probably best to just to respond to what he has written here, and, and that is in this book, God is Not Great. All right, let's look at a few things in the outline. Here's his main argument. This is what I have under number two. Uh, Religion has no evidence to port it. And I'll look at some of his claims on this. Oh, by the way, in the book, uh, I didn't add this up. I should have. I just didn't want to go back and reread it. Uh, But I should have done it when I read it the first time. And that is, I, I think he probably has over 200 arguments against religion. At least 200 of them. Uh, it's amazing. Almost every page you're you're kind of you know, slapped you know, and you're blindsided and you're sort of taken off guard by what he has just said. It is a full fledged, frontal attack, no subtlety, I'm in your face, I don't like you, I don't believe in what you're saying, and you are a threat, and we need to get rid of you kind of argument. There is a there's a there's a, a, a sort of a crusader attitude in the book, and he's not giving any deference No generosity to religious people at all. Well, what I want to do is kind of what I think would be sort of the the arguments that epitomize so much else of what he tries to do in the book. But that's the first point that he's going to make. You have no claim to what you believe in, none. Therefore, if you're going to ask me to take you seriously, it's like asking to take a fool seriously. Second, religion is born out of superstition and fear. He tries to show that. That's all it is. There's no revelation. There's no truth. There's no logic. There's no reason, no science to religion. It's all superstition and fear. Three, it corrupts civilization with prejudice, hate, violence, and ignorance. And he's going to make this claim that all violence that has happened is a result of religion. Now, that's a big claim that the wars that happened in the 20th century, which was the century of death, were actually religious wars. Okay, we'll look at that. Four, as civilization advances in science and re- reason, religion will disappear. Of course, Marx said this, that, uh, Freud said that, and others have said that, and he really believes that. He thinks we're on the dawn of that, by the way, that within a generation, there will not be religion, other than in the less developed parts of the world. In the West, in particular, will finally come of age, see the light, and will no longer be religious. Like I said, it's a real charge. Okay, he has an interesting story here about when it finally dawned on him that he was an atheist. He went to a parochial school there in the Church of England, and his uh, teacher named Mrs. Watts one day was going through various things about creation. They took a walk out in the the field and looked at various plants and... uh, and she was making a claim how all this is sort of harmonized by the seasons of the year. And then it was springtime, and she mentioned how pleasant the, the light green colors were to the eye. And she said, shouldn't we be thankful for God to make these plants colored in a way that's very pleasing to our eyes? That our eyes are pleased by such colors. These colors are here in nature. God has made nature. Therefore, God has made these colors just for us to be pleased. And at nine years of age, it dawned on him that, you know, that's, that's false, that's ridiculous. Our eyes are made to adjust to nature, not nature made to adjust to our eyes. And, I mean, that, that's true. Uh, but he became convinced then that uh, all those claims about we should believe in God because of the design of nature are false claims. And then he says this about himself. This is number two. I simply knew, almost as if I had privileged access to a higher authority, that my teacher had managed to get everything wrong in just two sentences. The eyes were adjusted to nature and not the other way around. And then he goes on on that page, page three, and he talks about other arguments that people have given from nature to the belief in God. And he says those are all false as well, just as false and false for the same reason. And he comes to this conclusion that these objections against religion that he has come up with are as well as insuperable and inescapable. And he says at the end of the, or near the end of the book that um, I have been writing this book all my life. Uh, it's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about that. What does that mean to say you've been writing a book all your life? Since the age of nine, he probably was sooner. It's just that was that was his point of awakening. He didn't think there was a God and he was around people who did and who made claims that there was such a God and becoming convinced that there was no God, he always opposed it. Whatever they said, I am going to oppose. Not that I think there may be a grain of truth, or a half-truth even, or that I should at least hold my opinion in abeyance and then consider what they're saying. No, he knew they were wrong, and he was going to oppose it. In any possible way, he would oppose it. That's exactly what this book is. In a way, the book... I know this is kind of a harsh judgment. It it is just kind of one half argument after another half argument through. It's a very frustrating book to read, in my opinion. Uh, though some reviews said it was a great intellectual tour de force, I, I would never say that. Even if I were not a believer, I would say you know the the logic in this is very uh, skimpy. Uh, its its claims are are not founded. In fact a number of times, and a lot of people have brought this up against Hitchison, that you need to support your claims a little better. You need more evidence. And I think I have this written. Yeah, this is number five under number three. Let me uh, go to that. His his point about that is uh, what can be asserted with no evidence can be dismissed with no evidence. He doesn't feel the need to back up his arguments because he thinks that religion has no evidence, so why should I come up with evidence to show that it has no evidence? Now think about that. That's that's sophistry in my opinion. That's kind of a clever kind of card trick to, to make that a, a, a rational principle that I don't have to support myself against you because you cannot support yourself to defend you. That's his point. What does that actually sanction? What does that actually justify? His bread. That's right. It it justifies his his insult. That is, I have a right to insult you. That's basically what that says. And in a sense, that's what the book is. It is a a clever, uh, innovative, imaginative, 200-page insult. That's what it is. And his arguments are are thin. They're not supported. They have the veneer of kind of being right and Rational, but under any kind of close scrutiny you find out that he leaves a lot of different things out and and, and you know, any logician, any any first year logic student would find this book very unconvincing. Even if you were not a theist, you would find it unconvincing. But again, that's his point. He does not have to be convincing, he just has to be insulting.
1: Didn't you say he was a journalist?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that, I mean, he he made a great living and he did really well. And I've read some of his stuff. Uh, I mean, he's he he was a relentless, uh, uh, ad, uh, uh opposer of a lot of you know presumptuous politicians, which is a good thing for journalists to do. And I mean, he he could really expose, you know, tell the king that he didn't have any uh, clothes on. He was very good at it. But when he turned it to to religion he felt like, once again, he did not have to come up with sound arguments. If you read some of these well-known atheists, old atheists, for instance, like David Hume, famous Scottish philosopher, uh, though I, I disagree with David Hume, I mean, he has a real serious argument. And uh, we, we we force our students to read David Hume. He, he's a first-class philosopher. I, I think he's wrong, but he makes you come up with a better argument than he does. But see, for... For, uh, for Hitchison, he is not asking me to be rational in reply. He's not saying, look, come up with a good argument and I might listen to you. He is not asking the religious people to better defend themselves. What he's asking us to do is just to shut up and take the insult. That's what he's asking. You have no defense, so don't even talk. Just listen to how stupid you are. I, I know I- that sounds like a caricature, but read the book. I mean that's exactly what he says. Nero, Nero? yeah, Yeah, in a way, yeah. Uh, This kind of impervious—that is—he's impervious. impervious. He—he's built up a wall which he cannot be attacked. That is, a religious person has no legitimate uh, response to what he says here. Uh, Can come across very harsh. Very ungenerous. You know, when he died, I read a number of the obituaries about him. Did any of you? I mean, they're actually pretty interesting. A lot of religious people considered him to be friends. Larry Taunton. Yeah, Larry Taunton uh, considered him to be a friend and evidently had kind of a warm nature about him. He was a great conversationalist, kind of a great dinner party guy. Uh, and so there was, I think, a, an effective nature to him, a characteristic that probably was winsome to many people. But his his, his writings are not that way at all. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to fault him for that. A lot of people's public life is one way and their private life is another. And his private life probably was a very congenial, you know, kind-hearted person. But he comes across in these books very harshly condemnatory.
1: I think he became softer his latter years. I got to be a- You did? He uh, he had a copy of the gospel. He studied scripture. Larry had studied it with him. So uh, I think his bar his latter years was not near as severe. His Hmm. bite. His his latter years were not near as severe as his earlier years. Hmm. One of his main focus was just. to yell louder than the others. Yeah. And you know, if you yell loud enough, then there's no room for uh, discussion because the real basis for most of this is there's no room for discussion. Right. No facts. Right. Just yell loud and, and intimidate.
0: And, right. Okay. That was kind of his MO, his motives of operation, um, kind of how he tried to win these arguments, like you said, just yelling louder, being a little more acerbic with his insults. Very clever. Yeah, very clever. Very okay, that's a little bit about him. All right. <clears throat> and I want to look at a few of these arguments that I have. Actually, in the PowerPoint, I have a, about ten of these. I've condensed it down here to about six or seven of them. Okay, the first one is on the unreliability of the New Testament. So I'm going to sit. Uh, I'm having a hard time wobbling around up here. H.L. Uh, Minchin in a book called Treatise on the Gods says the New Testament is a helter-skelter accumulation of more or less discordant documents and uh, it shows signs of having been tampered with and that's all Hitchin says about the book. That's all he says. He doesn't go any into any detail about what Minchin says or evidence that Minchin comes up with to come to that claim. He just says Minchin, who is a very fine writer, very smart, respected by many people, says that the New Testament is just a helter-skelter of accumulation of more or less discordant documents. All right, and in that mention is a smart, good writer. Therefore, the New Testament is unreliable. And what do you think of that argument? I mean, that's his argument. I, I, I'm not making this up. And, and I know it, I've, I've condensed it down here just a small little syllogism. But uh, when you read that, that's what he will say. Mention well-known writer, respected by many people, says the New Testament is unreliable. Therefore, it is unreliable. Well, just for argument's sake, let's say that it is unreliable. But what would ever convince you that the the New Testament is an unreliable book?
1: Richard Simmons' book? Uh, Pretty good at doing that.
0: Showing that the New Testament is unreliable, or that it is reliable. Yeah. Okay. Very
1: reliable. Yeah. The archaeological uh, artifacts have been found to support everything that's in the New Testament. Right. And so has the secular writing of that time.
0: Right. Right. There's internal evidence that one can talk about. There was the whole canonical process that went through. I mean, there are a lot of responses that people have come up with to show why people, the church, thinks the New Testament is reliable. Not just appealing to inspiration, which is part of what the church says about the New Testament, but that there are sort of objective reasons why at least it should be treated with some sense of legitimacy, but he doesn't even consider that. He doesn't go into details. And again, it's not a scholarly kind of argument that he has here. If he were to really try to go into a lot of detail, then he would have to look at these arguments, pro and con. Look at what one says. Look at what another says. And these are, uh, aside from you know the the church's belief that the New Testament is inspired, uh, I mean these are really deep and intense scholarly debates. If you ever you know just go pick up some book written by a New Testament scholar about you know, the canonicity of the New Testament and where all these documents come from and the agreement, and sometimes disagreements in the New Testament. These are very very subtle arguments and have been going on with, you know, very, very learned, careful reasoners for hundreds and hundreds of years, he doesn't ask us to consider that. He doesn't say it. This goes back to his his original assumption. You can give no evidence for your belief. You cannot. So don't even try to respond to my accusation against you. And don't ask me to come up with evidence. See, he feels he doesn't have to do that. He just needs to expose to insult. All right. Uh, The next one, the fifth one. The existence of Jesus is highly questionable. Oh, after each one of these little arguments, I I mention what I consider to be the fallacy to this. The first one here is the appeal to authority. That's a fallacy. In logic, it's called an informal fallacy. It's a misuse of an evidence. He just quotes Mention without explaining what Mention says. And we are supposed to assume that by his authority this issue is settled. That's a misuse of an authority. Authority is good only if the evidence and the argument that the authority uses is good. And he doesn't ask us to even consider that. So this is a misuse of an authority. You could think of all kinds of other uh, conclusions than the one that he gives. And it also begs the question. I mean, he, he 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 says, well, don't question me on this. Don't ask me to come up with evidence. That's called begging the question. All right, the next one. The existence of Jesus is highly questionable. His supposed disciples were illiterate and hence could not have written anything. The New Testament thus was written much later, which means the original disciples could not have read them. Christians believe in Jesus because of what these later letters and Gospels say. Therefore, there is no evidence Jesus existed. That's his argument. You can look at it, page 114. Now, what do you think about that argument? One, uh, there may have been disciples that were illiterate, but I suspect Matthew was, was literate. He was a tax collector, right? Uh, it might have been that uh, Peter and James, because they were fishermen from Galilee, were illiterate. Uh, but I suspect the others who came from Jerusalem, though, were literate. Was highly educated. Highly educated.
1: Luke was a doctor.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right, Luke was a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean we've got everybody. literate doctors? All right. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> Um, so he just makes that claim. The disciples were illiterate. And if you're illiterate you can't write. Well, okay, that follows. And so if they all were illiterate, then we do we do not have anything from the apostles. But again, he doesn't justify that, he doesn't give a defense for it, he doesn't show any evidence. He just makes that claim. And I'm kind of wondering where what books has you know books has he been reading? Uh, what discussions you know, has he had with New Testament scholars, with people who have studied these issues with some seriousness? Dude, where, where, what the thing is, he hasn't, because at age nine he became convinced that anything a religious person says has no evidence. So you can talk about maybe Matthew being literate and writing a gospel, and Paul being a learned Pharisee and writing his letters. You can talk about that, but I'm not going to take you seriously, right? Because that's not evidence. You cannot have any evidence.
1: Dennis, what's the source of his authority for his nine-year-old
0: insight? (laughs) Well, he says, I just knew. He came to that insight himself. It just There's an appeal to what is obvious to him. To him, it was just obvious that his teacher, Mrs. Katie, was wrong. And consequently, all these religious arguments that you can reason to God's existence or to glorify and praise God because of features of the world, that's just obviously wrong, he said. And see, you know, it'd be like saying... My bow tie is blue. And you could sit there all you wanted to and tell me it was yellow, but I'm not going to take you seriously. I'm going to say you're colorblind.
1: That's what we call It's true because I say it.
0: Right. But but it is based on this kind of experience in a way. But it's interesting because he he
1: references a higher authority.
0: Yeah. And that higher authority... Now, he has a brother named Philip who was a Christian and a journalist as well. And uh, they had a falling out and they finally reconciled near the end Uh, But they really opposed each other over this. And Philip has, I read it someplace, has an article in which he thinks that uh, what a religious person uses for their religious experience, like Paul was visited by God on the way to Damascus, Moses was visited by God at Sinai, he uses that as the basis for his thinking. Unquestionable. Just like, I'm not going to challenge what Moses experienced at Sinai. I'm not going to say that you know Paul was delusional there in Damascus and, and the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration were hallucinating. I'm not going to say that when I don't know enough about it. But that's those are sort of primal experiences for our faith. I mean, if Moses hadn't had that and if Jesus didn't have it and the disciples didn't have it, then we don't have any right for having ours. I, I would that, that, that's an argument. And so that's a very significant claim to make that I have experienced God in the same way that the disciples did at Transfiguration. But that's the basis of our faith. Well, and I think that plays the same thing with him. It's unquestionable. I'm going to pause here for a second. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to fault him for not having a religious experience. I'm not. And we shouldn't. Those things are hard to explain in the first place, I have to admit. I've had mine, but it, it's more like it came on me rather than that I went out and found it. Even though I've worked hard at it, I've been disciplined at it in my life, I've I've gone to very wonderful places which I've shared with some of you before and I've had intense experiences and so but there's a there's a quality about a religious experience that we receive it rather than procure it. And so if he hasn't had that, I'm not gonna fault him for that. I'm not now he may have opposed it, he may have not wanted it, maybe had a chance to have it, but I can't say uh, he has to experience the same thing that I experience. Because uh, our faith is based upon that encounter with God. It's not just based upon speculation and kind of what we ever, we think is nice. It's based upon revelation. And if he hasn't had that, then then that's fine. And so I, my argument with him, and, and really this is, should be our argument with anyone who or better yet, a response to anyone who doesn't necessarily share these claims, these, these affirmations that the church makes, is, that, um, is, is not that you know, there's something deficient about your experience. They just haven't had it. And we should pray for that. We should be witnesses of that. We should be examples for such an experience. But whether they have it or not is left up to ultimately you know, the, the mystery and the election of God. So that's not my problem. But my problem with him are these charges that he makes, these claims that he makes. And I think, though I'm not going to challenge the integrity of his life, even though I think he could be questionable at times, I'm not going to say, you know, you're a horrible human being because you haven't had the experience that I've had. But I am going to say to him, you are unfair in what you are doing. What you have done here in all these books and arguments... From Mother Teresa, and like I said, it was a scandalous book about her, in my opinion. And and the nature of this book, God is not great. Uh, he should uh, he should be responsible for what he has done, and the church should respond to this. It'd be like somebody you know talking about one of my children that was totally unfounded. I as a father, I feel some responsibility to defend my child. And these are charges here that Jesus did not exist. That's a big charge. And the evidence is that the disciples were illiterate and they couldn't write anything? It's a bad argument. He begs the question again. He doesn't give us evidence for that. And it just doesn't follow. It doesn't follow. The claim they are literate, therefore Jesus did not exist. Well, well, granted, let's just for argument's sake say this. Peter was illiterate, let's say. Being a fisherman from Galilee is a very poor area. Probably didn't have it, you know, educational schools there and and so on. Uh, yes, but does that mean he didn't dictate that letter? He didn't respond and talk about those stories with someone who did write it down? Doesn't mean that at all. You can come up with other conclusions, and the conclusion he comes with with the same evidence. Six, the New Testament is filled with contradictions. Many eminent scholars have written about contradictions in the New Testament. No Christian has ever explained these contradictions. That's his claim. No one has ever explained them. Christians used to burn or silence people who questioned the New Testament. He talks about that, like the Inquisition and so on. Therefore, the New Testament is unreliable and only believed upon appeal to its authority. Many, like he said, many people talk about the contradictions in the New Testament, and no Christian has ever satisfactorily responded to those contradictions. Therefore, it's unreliable. And we make people believe in the New Testament only out of this appeal to authority. And three, four hundred years ago, we'd burn you if you didn't believe in the New Testament, or you know arrest you for that. Therefore, it is filled with contradictions. Again, it's um, it's a claim filled with contradictions. You know, again, reading the New Testament, you do find some textual problems in chronology sometimes, comparing the four Gospels together. There are some chronological problems with some of that. There are some incidents, events that are reported in little different ways. You know, for instance, around the tomb of Jesus, you know, was it angels or young men? There are differences among the Gospels. There really are. No doubt about it. You can just read it and find that out. And he calls those contradictions. Now, the Tell me this. I, I know it's it's early and you probably think you shouldn't be thinking about this sort of stuff at, at church, but it's a logical point. What's the difference between an inconsistency and a contradiction? You ever, any of you ever had a logic class back in college? What's the difference between an inconsistency and a contradiction?
1: Well, inconsistencies really mean the Gospels were like four different newspaper reporters in the same school. Right, right. you going to get four different writers you know, telling you what they <coughs> saw in their angle on the field. Right. And, and Therefore, you're going to get four, they're going to get the same game, right. four different views of what they saw. Right. The contradiction is they're all sitting together and they and they say four different things in the same situation. In the
0: same For instance, uh, I, I suspect there are several lawyers here. In a trial, you'll have people who come as testimonies or witnesses, and there might be some differences, discrepancies, inconsistency in their testimony, but you can still talk about the same event and add all that up to come to some conclusion about, you know, right or wrong, you know, guilty or innocent. Not everything has to be totally consistent to talk about the same thing, but a contradiction is that one of them is false. One of them is false. False. I think in the New Testament, though we may have inconsistencies, that doesn't mean they're not talking about the same event. One of them does not have to be false. He says the, if it's an inconsistency it has to be a contradiction. And he doesn't justify that. It doesn't have to be that.
1: Then it's when you say your perception of reality depends on where you stand.
0: Exactly. Right. He stands with
1: the presupposition, there is no God, so he interprets everything through that lens.
0: Right. That's right. And so, right, the inconsistencies are born there because there's nothing to talk about. Exactly right. Well, again, I see some real serious problems with that. It's a hasty generalization to say you have these problems there before. The whole thing is a problem. And it begs a question once again. It's a circular argument. You cannot make sense, all right, you're talking Therefore, you're not making sense. That's a circular argument. The New Testament cannot support your belief. You're using the New Testament. It's unreliable. Therefore, you cannot support your belief. That's called begging the question or arguing in a circle. Uh, Here are a couple of pretty interesting ones that he has. Religion is abuse of children. He mentioned circumcision as mutilation of infant genitalia, which violates the child's body and hinders future sexual pleasure. He just says that. I mean, it's harmful. It's a, In fact, he even thinks it's immoral circumcision because you don't ask the child to have informed consent. Uh, the taboo against masturbation has um, called, no, I, mean, I meant to say, created sexual repression, which has caused discrimination, self loathing, and violence. A lot of the violence of men towards women were a result of sexual repression, which has come from this taboo of masturbation. Therefore, Religion is abuse of children. That's his argument. Well, there are a couple of fallacies in this. What's called amphiboly—that uh, that is the ambiguity of the word. He has a couple of meanings of the word. Circumcision is mutilation. Strong word, mutilation. Like cutting off someone's finger or something. Mutilation. As though circumcision has no medical reasons for it. Just like if you get your child as an infant and just cut off the thumb, there are no medical reasons, unless it's cancerous, I guess, to cut off your child's thumb. Therefore, circumcision is the same thing. It's mutilation. Well, that's a misuse of that word, in other words. It, It sort of stacks the deck. I mean, raise your hand if you are for mutilating your child. Of course, nobody is for that. All right raise your hand if you've had your well you don't have to but you've had your your son uh, circumcised all right raise your hand. okay therefore you're just as bad as those guys over in that other room who had their son's son, uh, fingers cut off well that's an amphiboly that is it's making an argument based upon the ambiguity and the misuse of a word and it too is a circular argument okay i've got about 2 minutes here does religion produce anything good and this is this he says this sincerely straight faced Uh, but uh, it is a bogus, bogus argument. The good associated with religious acts like hospitals, education, care for the poor, Mother Teresa's work with the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta, all the good things that people have said have come from religious people like your love of neighbor and your helping of the sick people actually come from humanistic values, not your religious values. Why is that? Why would he ever say that? Because if it's religion is bad. Okay, you're doing something good. And good cannot come from bad. Therefore, it couldn't have come from your religious motives. It comes from a humanistic one. Uh, human dec- decency is not derived from religion. It precedes it. So those Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon, all those, and you could say that they've always been religious, but uh, we did not invent what is good, Um uh, People who, who were around long before people were sort of consciously religious like us uh, were good, and so good precedes religion. Therefore, religion does not do any good. As an aside, uh, aside argument to this, and I have it in the longer presentation, you know, there have been a lot of people who have raised this against him who said, now what about a lot of the wars of the 20th century? They were started by atheistic or pagan regimes, like Nazism was paganism. Obviously, uh, all those horrible, horrible purges by Stalin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and those people—they were all Marxist atheists. And uh, any you know what his explanation for that was? They were actually religious.
1: <laughs>
0: they just didn't have the name God in their vocabulary. They were doing the same thing that religion did. What? What Pol Pot? Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler did was no different than what the cardinals and the bishops and the kings did in the Crusades and the Grand Inquisition. They're all acting religiously. Well, again, with that kind of response, I, what can one say? There, there's no way to respond to that kind of argument. Okay, just a summary here. It was uh, This is from him. It was never that difficult to see that religion was a cause of hatred and conflict and that its maintenance depended upon ignorance and superstition. Satirists and poets, as well as philosophers and men of science, were capable of pointing out that if triangles had gods, their gods would have three sides, just as Tracian gods had blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, I'll try to bring this to a conclusion. There is a grain of truth to what he says to that one. Oftentimes, we will make God after our own image after our own desires. We will fashion God just to be for us or just for me. And there's a grain of truth to that. Freud brought that up a lot with his notion of religion as a wish projection. Uh, And so I think we can learn from that kind of criticism. And that is to always be critical somewhat of what we think about God. Are we misusing our faith just to serve our own prejudices, our own self-advantages, and so on? I think we can respond to this. We need to develop answers. But the last thing I want to say here, we need to just remain confident against these kinds of insults. Um, And I do think this is becoming perhaps more prevalent. And as I look at these other well-known new atheists, we'll see even other versions of that. Okay, let's take a minute. Anybody have a comment or a question? If you need to go, you're not hurting my feelings if you have to go. yeah.